With everything going on in our world, it seems like any hint of the good life has been put on hold. But our search for the good life has long been humanity's greatest question, whether in the first century or the 21st, whether for ancient Jews or Greeks, or for us today. It's our quest for the good life that drives us humans to build societies, to turn houses into homes. And we human beings are so shaped by our environment and the people around us that we actually don't ever exist in a neutral, cultureless vacuum. With so much diversity among us, it's hard to know whose definition of good to believe or whose definition of bad we should actually trust and what we ought to do with this information. And so when we're presented with new ideas and experiences, we either accept them fully, reject them, or attempt to integrate them into our current worldview. And while we all seem to operate off a sense of general right and wrong, it isn't difficult for us to find a group of people who think, who live, who vote differently to us. You might even live with these people. Actually, our world today isn't completely unlike that of the ancient Greeks and Romans. They had a pantheon of gods who, if you worshipped one, meant that you risked offending another. And they had countless schools of philosophy too, each with a different answer on how you ought to live your life. Now, we might not bow down before idols and gods or go to temples to give sacrifices, but there are certainly many different schools of thought which shape the way that we think, we speak, and we live. And if we go with the advice of one, it will inevitably mean that we have to say no to another. And it's hard to navigate all of these different voices. We need something, we need someone to help us to make sense of all of this. What if we were confronted, not by an idea or an experience, but by a person so compelling that our life together could never be the same? That's Paul's story here in Acts. He had encountered the risen Jesus. And the power of this encounter caused Paul to dedicate his entire life to spreading the message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and its impact upon humanity's past, present, and future. And it's this message that Christians will often call the gospel. And it's actually this gospel that gives us the truth and the ability to truly see what is wholesome, what is right, and what is good. I think if Paul were living in our day, he'd liken his gospel message to a vaccine for COVID. It's something that has the power to change the course of all human history, but if withheld, could lead to the death and destruction of millions. And withholding such a thing with such great power would be pure selfishness, wouldn't it? How can we objectively see and know what's truly good and right? Or selfish and evil. What the, do- what the gospel does is it gives us a new way of seeing ourselves and the world. Not with neutral eyes, but with love-filled gospel eyes. So today as we look at Acts 17, we'll see how the gospel, one, affirms culture. Secondly, challenges culture. And thirdly, redeems culture. The British author and theologian C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. 
not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. The gospel, the message of Jesus, it changes everything. It changes the way we see everything. How we see ourselves, others, our society, how we see our families, how we understand our work. It changes the way we see everything. And it's with these gospel eyes, these gospel lenses that Paul sees the world around him. And we read of this in Acts 17. As Paul walks the streets of Athens, he becomes greatly distressed by what he sees, a city full of idols. He's distressed for God's sake and distressed for the Athenians' sake. Earlier in Acts, we read about Paul's old life of persecuting and murdering Christians and how his life was turned upside down by an encounter with the resurrected Jesus on the Damascus Road. Paul, once a staunch opponent of Jesus and his people, had now become Jesus' greatest messenger, telling everyone who would listen about the love, grace, forgiveness, and reconciliation of God in Jesus for all who would believe. And it's this God, the one who has made himself known through Jesus' life and death and resurrection, this is the one true and living God. He is the God who is worthy and deserving all worship. And so as Paul walks the streets of Athens, his heart is broken and a fire ignited in his belly because he knows that Jesus is the one that the Athenians need to hear about. As he saw the idol with the inscription that said, to an unknown God, it became very clear to him that the Athenians were ignorant of what and who they ought to worship. Now, the Athenians valued worship. Their city was full of temples and idols. Within them was the good sense that there was more to life than just what they could see and hear, touch, taste, and smell. In the Athenians and their culture was a deeply rooted longing for what's true and admirable and transcendent. So as Paul stands before the Areopagus, the council of, the, um, of Athens' leaders, he genuinely affirms the good senses that they have within them to pursue the truth and to worship the transcendent. If there's any doubt that Paul sees value in the Greek culture, he even quotes to the Athenians lines from their own prophets and philosophers. He tells the Athenians that they were made to know God and that it's this God who is not disinterested and impersonal, just as some of their philosophers had argued. But instead, God is not far from any one of us, as he says in verse 27. For in him we live and move and have our being. And as another one of their prophets had said, we are his offspring. Now, these quotes were all in reference to the Greek god Zeus, but nevertheless, Paul finds in them a truth that all life exists within and is held by a power greater than what we can see. And that this power is the power that conceived humanity. And from there, Paul actually sets out to show how their longings for truth and meaning 
are actually fulfilled in and through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It can be easy to look at the world around us with harsh and judgmental eyes. And Christians are too often accused of this, and too often we Christians are guilty of this. The movement of Jesus' life was firstly to enter into the created order. The infinite Son of God came and took on human flesh to take on our limitations and our temptations, to fulfill and open us up to our created purpose, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And because Jesus has done this for us, our eyes can be opened to see the good to be found in any single person or any collective of people. And the Bible affirms this worth from the get-go. It affirms that all humanity was created in God's image. Some of you might know that during the week I work with some of Melbourne's most disadvantaged young people. Many of them are drug addicted. A lot of them have committed unspeakable crimes against other people. And yet despite all of this, within them is this great sense of loyalty, a great longing for family that's actually deeply admirable. There's good in them. There's good in us. Our general desire to see justice enacted, our repulsion against racism, our desire and longing for beauty and for art, the way we cherish our friendships and our family and our community, these are all good, wonderful and really godly things that ought to be valued and affirmed. And just as there was some truth to be found in the words of the ancient Greek poets, that our longings for love and acceptance that we find in our music, the desire to see a hero come through in our stories, and the quest to uncover the truth in our media, all of these things point us to good and deeper longings that we ought to see and affirm in our culture. And while we see Paul entering into the culture of the Athenians to affirm it, we also see the challenge that the gospel presents to any culture. As Paul preached in the marketplaces of Athens, the onlookers were confused as to what exactly he was saying. We read in verse 18 that in his audience are some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Now both the Epicureans and Stoics in the time of Paul were asking essentially the same question. What do we need to do to live the good life? Now, the Epicureans were much like the positive psychologists of our day who sought the good life through finding contentment and gratitude in the simple pleasures and moments of everyday life. And it's in this contentment that they sought to maximize pleasure and minimize pain. The Stoics, they sought the good life by learning to accept fate as the decision of some greater intelligence or reason. And by doing so, building for themselves a virtue that would remain unshaken despite whatever happens in life. And so these two groups, they invite Paul to present his ideas at the Areopagus, seeking to better understand what he's saying. And when Paul takes center stage, he meets the audience simultaneously with affirmation as well as significant and deeply cutting challenge. You are ignorant 
of the very thing you worship, he says to them. And he points out the inconsistency in their worship. How can a transcendent being be constricted to a shape and form molded by human hands? And why would God ever need humans to do anything for him? If he were the all-powerful being that had created them. Instead, Paul argues that it was this all-powerful creator God who had made humans to seek after and to find and to trust him. But of all that Paul said, the most jarring thing to the Athenians was that this God, the transcendent creator, had chosen to most fully reveal himself in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. The Greeks generally had no issues with the idea of immortality. Plato, centuries before, had argued for the existence of the immortal soul. But deeply ingrained in the Greek psyche and religious belief was the belief that the immaterial was superior to the physical. And that actually the physical material world was the source of all human suffering. So the physical world wasn't something to be escaped. Sorry, the physical world was something to be escaped, not something to be resurrected into. Now, every culture, every subculture has its stories, its values, its beliefs, and its heroes. As we said before, we don't exist in a cultureless vacuum. We're invariably shaped by the world around us. But the deeply piercing challenge of the gospel is that our deepest longings for meaning, purpose, pleasure, and transcendence find their fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus. This challenging nature of the gospel is why we see such varied responses to its proclamation. Many scoff and sneer, some inquire further, and fewer still believe. For those of us who believe in this gospel, and who are working to live out its implications, I think there's a necessity for us to realize the truly challenging nature of the gospel. Christianity is now far from Australia's dominant cultural story. In the ABC's Australia's Talk Survey, religious belief out of eight identity markers ranked dead last behind political convictions, nationality, gender, language, occupation, sexual orientation, and ethnicity. Three quarters of the people who responded to this survey said that religious convictions ought to be kept to oneself. Now, this wasn't just a view held by secular people or atheists. This is also a view held by 53% of Catholics, 39% of Protestants, and 47% of people with other religious beliefs. And so the reality is for us now, as it was for Paul, that holding on to the gospel will come with some social cost. The truth is that the gospel is deeply challenging and offensive. It's hard to live in the tension between celebrating and affirming the good of our culture whilst also holding to a truth that so deeply challenges it. And for 
the Christian, the fuel for our gospel-shaped seeing and living, must be the gospel itself. Unless we're humbled by the truth of the gospel, the truth that apart from Jesus we can never save ourselves, we can't actually see others with loving gospel eyes. And unless we're emboldened and secured in the truth of the gospel, that because of Jesus, we are loved and accepted by God more than we could ever dare imagine, we will not have the courage to live in a way that will zig when the culture zags. What we need is the gospel to take root in the deepest parts of ourselves. We need to daily take hold of who we are because of Jesus and depend on the power of the Spirit to make it true of us. We need to be regularly reminded of the gospel through spiritual disciplines of prayer, Bible reading, meditation, reflection, fellowship and worship. And this isn't just an individual endeavour. We need to be reminded of the gospel as we share everyday life with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so as we see the world around us, as Paul did, affirming not just the good of the culture, but also bringing the challenge of the gospel to the culture, we can also work to see the power of the gospel redeem our culture. As Christians, we sit with the tension of simultaneously enjoying the good of our culture, whilst also belonging to a king and a kingdom that fundamentally challenges it. And we sit in this tension because the Christian holds on to the hope that in Jesus, God is redeeming and restoring all things. And as we sit in this tension and hold on to this hope we have in Jesus, I think God is doing a significant work in our city here and now. I can't think of another time in recent history where we were all so acutely aware of how much we need each other. And we weren't so acutely aware of how connected we are and also how disconnected we are. At this very moment, we're seeing people from every religious, cultural, economic and ethnic background rallying together to work for the common good. Not just to suppress the spread of the coronavirus, but also to meet the needs of our neighbours. And we need only to look to the generous efforts to help those who are locked in the housing towers to get a sense of this. This coming together of people from every corner of the globe is but a glimpse into the cosmic work that God is doing to bring everything to unity under Jesus. In our everyday lives as Christians, however, it's often hard for us to see the forest from the trees. But our hope in Jesus is that God is bringing all of history to the place that he promises in Isaiah 25. A place where peoples from every corner of the world are brought together to share in the blessings of God, to be forgiven and reconciled to him and to one another, and to be free from suffering, pain and death. And with each other all together with one heart, rejoice in the God who has done this. It's the resurrection of Jesus that assures us that this is not only possible, but that it's a reality that God will bring about. But what does all of this 
look like in our everyday lives as God's people? How does the gospel change the way that I work, the way I live in relationship with other people, the way I think, speak, or the way I commute on public transport? How do I testify to Jesus in the everyday stuff of life? And for us who are trying to live out our faith, we perpetually need the wisdom and the help of God's Spirit to guide us in discerning what it is that he's given for us to do. Now, we're not all called to be international missionaries like Paul, but we are all called to follow Jesus and to put our trust in him with every part of our lives. And so following Jesus and holding on to the hope that we have in him means that you might face moral dilemmas at work when you're asked to handle situation in situations in unethical ways. Or it might mean that you choose not to participate in particular social activities because they actually dehumanize other people. Or it might mean that you spend and invest your money differently because your hope is in a kingdom not of this world. Following Jesus and hoping in him ought to change the way that we are thinking and speaking about the lockdown, the global pandemic, and even the threat of death. And in our culture in Melbourne in 2020, that is really resistant to hearing the gospel, what might be most powerful in this cultural moment is for Melbourne to see the word lived out in God's people. See, it might be a few years before a family member or a colleague asks you about the hope you have in Jesus. But we should be prepared for this, as 1 Peter 3.15 tells us. And while we wait for that moment, in this cultural moment, how we live together as God's people deeply matters. As the gospel works itself out in our church and our MCs, we together testify to the crucified and resurrected Jesus through our love. My hope and my prayer is that God would use our church, would use our MCs, would use you to bring people to a place similar to what some of the Athenians say in verse 32. We want to hear more about this Jesus. Alpha's been a really great space for some curious and open people to explore and to challenge and to question Christianity. And in doing so, our Alpha groups have actually had a foretaste of what life in Christian community can look like. And so if you have someone in your life who's curious and asking questions, perhaps you might pray and consider inviting them to the next Alpha course. Church, as we live in and live out the gospel, there will always be things in our culture we can affirm There will always be things that will be inevitably challenged. And there will always be things that God is seeking to redeem and to restore. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we can humbly see and affirm the good longings of our culture. We can live in such a way that challenges its idols. And we can work to see it redeemed and the kingdom of God established.